if we have this scaredness that many young people now have, you, it's obvious you think, I'm going to die in 10 years. There is no other problem. It's like a meteor hurtling towards Earth. And the only thing to do is to you know, send off Bruce Willis on a, on a spaceship and, and try to deflect it and do nothing else. But of course, the reality is this is one of the many problems we need to fix in the 21st century. It's by no means the biggest. It's one of the many, and we should fix it smartly. But we should remain calm. Welcome back. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Joining us on the line is Bjorn Lomberg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. His latest book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn, thanks so much for joining the show. Really appreciate it. Ben, it's great to be back. So obviously, we have the Global Climate Conference in Glasgow. It is happening in November. That is coming up. And we are in the ramp-up stage of, of global warming paranoia and panic. It is astonishing that every year around this time, there seems to be this, this vast surge of stories about how climate change is going to kill us all. And it's not that climate change isn't a thing that's happening, as you point out repeatedly, or as I pointed out repeatedly. It's that climate change is happening, and it's going to have some deleterious effects. Those deleterious effects are going to happen over the course of the century. Most of them are things that we can control for as humans who are very, very good at adaptation. So why all of the outsized panic? And does that have more to do with sort of an underlying global agenda? Well, it's very clear that the alarm is very much manufactured. As you point out, global warming is a real problem. Global warming will have negative impacts. That's why it's a problem. But the end of the world, it both means that we end up spending resources really badly because we're panicked. But of course, also, it has a tremendous impact on people's lives. Uh, look at all the young people who literally believe that life is over for them. Uh, you know, they're like, why should I go to school when life is going to end in 10 or 20 years? That's a terrible outcome. And it's also incorrect. And I've been battling this in a lot of different ways, simply trying to say, look, you've got to look at the data. You have to look at what are the facts, not just what feels right. Yeah, Bjorn, it seems that the, the climate change sort of hysterics crowd uh, instead of taking a solid look at the data, they would prefer never to take a look at the data, which is why their spokespeople generally are not scientists. Their spokespeople generally are children or or barely non-children like Greta Thunberg. So for years, we heard that Greta was disappointed in us. And if Greta was disappointed in us, then this meant that we obviously had to do more. She never called for anything particularly specific other than apparently wrecking the world economy. Um, but because she was a child and because she sailed from sailed the Atlantic to to come to the United States and talk rather than taking a jet, this meant that she was a credible source with regard to global warming. I've yet to hear any explanation of what her policies would actually accomplish. But I, I guess that when you put talking faces on TV yelling at you, then this is supposed to what jog the Western world into giving up all economic development, which, by the way, is the chief method by which environmentalism actually starts to matter to people is when you're developed enough to actually care about the environment. It is a, an astounding fact, and, and I think it's worth to step back. Look, I think Greta is, is a very good example of what very many young people that I meet are incredibly worried. I understand why she's worried. You know, if you just read the press, it feels like this is the end of the world. And, and, and she's not wrong in saying, look, you're not living up to your promises because politicians have promised vastly more than they're actually going to deliver because, as you point out, that would be phenomenally expensive. But, and I think this is important, we need to give these young people, and of course everyone, the good data to understand that while this is a problem, it's not the end of the world. So one of the things I've, I've pointed out 
is that we know, for instance, with rising temperatures, you're going to see more heat death. That's a real problem. But with rising temperatures, you're also going to see fewer cold deaths. And just remember, cold deaths vastly outweigh heat deaths. So there's about 600,000 uh, uh, heat deaths in the world. There's 4.5 million cold deaths. Over the last 20 years, a new study in the Lancet estimates that the temperature rises that we've seen over the last, those last 20 years increased heat deaths, but decreased cold deaths much more, such that today, every year, we save 166,000 people from dying because of the higher temperature. This is not the end of the world. This is actually a net positive. Now, in the long run, that's probably not going to stay like that. It is not the only impact of global warming, but this is exactly what you don't see in the headlines. You just hear, oh my God, more people are going to die from heat, which is true, but you don't hear many fewer people are going to die from cold. You need to hear the whole picture in order to not be alarmed and in order to be well-informed. And Bjorn, one of the things that drives me crazy about this particular sort of conversation is that if you want nobody to die of heat or cool deaths, uh, then it turns out that we have solutions for that in developed countries. They're called heating and air conditioning. And as you become much more yeah. developed economically, you tend to have very few heat deaths and very few cold deaths. And when, when there is a, a heat wave like there was in France a few years back and, and a bunch of elderly people died in their apartments, it's because they did not have sufficient air conditioning, not just because it was hot outside. Uh, if, you, if you wish to relegate most of the world's population to the abject penury that getting rid of carbon-based fuels in the way that Greta Thunberg calls for would actually happen, you're talking about a lot more people dying. Exactly. So what you need to recognize is that in rich countries, as you mentioned, for instance, in the U.S., we have studies back from uh, early 1900. Uh, U.S. now sees more heat waves than they did in the first part of the century. And yet you have many fewer people dying from uh, heat deaths because you have air conditioning. It's really not very complicated. As you mentioned, in France in 2003, you had this huge uh, heat wave that killed lots and lots of uh, uh, especially old people in Paris. And the main reason, of course, was that they didn't have any access to cool air. Now they've put in air conditioners in most uh, uh, old people's homes, and they had a higher and bigger heat wave. They had many, many fewer deaths. Actually, it turns out that we're not nearly as good at fixing cold deaths for a simple reason. Heat death is something that happens within a few days. So you simply need to open up your malls and make sure that everybody gets air, uh, access to air conditioning. But cold deaths happen because you don't have access to heated homes, well-heated homes for months. And for many people, that's actually turning out to be very hard to do because it's costly. And as you point out, with climate policies, it'll get costlier yet. And so you actually see that many developing, uh, developed countries have successfully reduced heat deaths but they have not gotten cold deaths under control. In the U.S., for instance, cold deaths are actually rising and very likely to a large extent because people can't afford to keep their homes well uh, heated. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, you may have noticed that the global pandemic has completely disrupted the markets. Reckless spending from Pelosi and Biden that's making things worse. Finding good places to invest your hard-earned $100,000 nest egg, it can be tougher than ever. Well, if you're like me or the rest of America, you're probably heavily allocated to equities which is exactly what every report from the Wall Street Journal to City is telling you probably not to do at this point. They're projecting equity returns anywhere from 5% to actually going negative. With the Fed printing trillions of bucks on Congress's monstrous infrastructure bill, it doesn't take a genius to see your money needs a safe haven. It needs it right now. So 
How are professional investors preparing for this nightmare scenario? Well, many of them already have. They've turned to an under-the-radar asset class, one that has historically only been available to coastal elites and hedge fund managers. It's a real physical asset. It's not gold or real estate or crypto. It's actually fine art. It's one of the oldest, most stable asset classes of all time. Thanks to a new revolutionary tech platform, you can finally get access to this exciting $6 trillion world. Early adopters have already returned 32% on their investment, and the waitlist keeps getting longer. Lucky for you, they've given me 60 passes to just skip that. To jump to the front of the line, head on over to masterworks.io slash Ben. That is masterworks.io slash Ben. Previous offers have sold out in hours. Don't wait around. Before deciding to invest, carefully review the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. We're speaking with Bjorn Lomberg. He, of course, is at the Copenhagen Consensus and Visiting Fellow at Hoover Institution. His book is False Alarm. So, Bjorn, one of the other issues that has come up a lot in the United States recently is, is the wildfire issue. So we've seen extensive wildfires in the West. Uh, I was recently in Sacramento. The air quality is just terrible over there because of the wildfires that they've had there throughout the summer. And of course, the governor of California has said he now wants to spend $15 billion on various climate projects. Well, I mean, the, the reality is that as everybody who's watched this stuff knows, it is, it is the foresting policy of the West that has largely led to the vast increase in acreage that's been burned recently. It is true that, that global warming makes things hotter. It makes things drier. It means that the brush is going to dry out faster. But there's a pretty easy way of preventing the sort of devastating wildfires that you've seen in places ranging from Wyoming and Montana to California, and that is to have a not crappy forest policy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so fundamentally, this is mostly about making smarter forest management. It's about uh, you know, burning uh, controlled burns so you don't have this buildup of underbush. You don't have this immense buildup of biomass. Uh, and, and there's also this funny and strange thing and, and, and mostly misinforming thing that people shift their focus constantly to where it's burning most and saying, see, uh, a little bit like you know when people were talking about the very real heat deaths and at the uh, uh, at the heat dome in, in California, sorry, in, in in the Northwest U.S. and Canada uh, earlier this year, uh, but failing to remember all the cold deaths that they don't report on and that are actually declining dramatically. The same way, in most of the world, we've actually seen declining levels of fire. So globally, fire has declined for the last 120 years because we're adaptive species that know how to make sure it doesn't burn. Because for most people, they don't actually want stuff to burn. Now, some places, as you mentioned, in, in the US uh, 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 West, they have not done so to a very large extent. They've made very bad forest policies. And now we're seeing uh, uh, forest fire levels going back up, not quite to where they were before prehistory, so you know, before 1800, but certainly much higher up. But remember, the, if you look at the U.S. average fire, it's actually, according to the U.S. own statistics, it's lower than, uh, than the average of the last 20 years. It's not higher, but you focus on some areas. And look, that does not mean that this is not a problem. If you live in some of these areas, obviously you want this fixed. But there's something absurd about saying, all right, it's burning here, so I'm going to drive an electric car. What? No, you should ask your governor and you should ask policymakers to make prescribed burns. You should make something that'll actually have a significant impact, not make stuff that will at best have a marginal impact in 100 years. Yeah, and Bjorn, this is one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy. If you got rid of all of the gas-powered vehicles on the road in the United States, the amount of damage reduction you would do from climate change is absolutely minimal over the course of the century because the fact is that 
Energy production is being done all over the world. Actually, gas-powered vehicles are a pretty small percentage of overall carbon emissions, even though the media portrays them as the largest percentage of carbon emissions. And, and the reality is that, again, Amer people generally are very, very good at adaptation. A good example of this is the hurricane that, that hit the southern United States and then made its way up through the Northeast over the past couple of months. It hit the exact same area as, as Hurricane Katrina did, and it did a minimum of damage. And the reason that it did a minimum of damage is because the governors of the states and the, and the federal government actually did their job and shored up the infrastructure in precisely those areas. So very similar hurricane, very different results. That has nothing to do with global warming. That has to do with humans actually doing their jobs. Exactly. And, and we need to know this in a more general fashion that because people get richer, they are hurt much less by whatever nature throws at them. When you put it like this, it's almost obvious. But if you actually look at the data, so we have good data back from 1920 uh, from the International Disaster Database for all climate-related disasters, so floods, droughts, storms, uh, wildfires, and, and uh, extreme temperatures. And their estimate is that over the last 100 years, we've gone from a situation where, on average, every year, about half a million people died from climate-related disasters. Last decade, in 2010, it was down to below 20,000, so about 18,000. This year, if we assume that the year is going to end like all other years, given the data that we already have, it will be about 6,000 people. We've seen a reduction of 99 point something, depending a little bit on what you think. So a dramatic reduction. And remember, at the same time, uh, global population is quadrupled. So what we've really seen is an extraordinary reduction in death risk from climate-related disasters. This has nothing to do with climate change. It has everything to do with the fact that people are much richer. And that's why you've got to ask yourself when very excited green uh, 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 campaigners tell us, you've got to cut your carbon emissions to help those poor people in you know, Tacoban for the Philippines or wherever. But the reality is, if you want to help poor people, you get them out from corrugated roofs and poverty. And you make sure that they get so rich that they become Florida. Because when a hurricane hits Florida, sure, there's lots of damage, but very few people die. If the same hurricane hits Guatemala, it damages their economy and it kills tens of thousands of people. I mean, this is exactly right. We live in Florida and we have things called hurricane windows. They're, 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 very, they're extremely heavy. The glass is very heavy. We, we have our roofing taken care of regularly. We have a generator, right? We have specific provisions that we've been able to make via the power of money in order to insulate ourselves from the possible damage of a hurricane. And even if there were a Category 5 hurricane, we could then get on these things called planes and we could fly to another place where the hurricane is not so that we wouldn't be directly in the path of the hurricane. And people do this every year down here in Florida. And we choose to live here. But we choose to live here because we could do all those things. If it were your choice is you get to live in Kansas in a shack or in Florida in a shack, you'd be an idiot not to, <laughs> to live in Florida on the beach in a shack, right? I mean, that would just be a dumb thing to do because you just don't have the ability to protect yourself in the same way. But but we don't, thank God, have to do that because of the magic of prosperity. This is something that William Nordhaus has talked about extensively. He won the Nobel Prize for it, and then all of his work subsequently seems to be ignored because his, his work, Nordhaus's work, is predicated on the assumption that economic growth over the course of the next century is going to continue, and that therefore we actually have to game out what level of economic damage will be done such that we ought to be worried about climate change beyond a particular point. But the climate change sort of radicals have suggested that any amount of climate change is is bad. And therefore, Nordhaus's work has sort of 
almost fallen out of fashion these days, specifically because he says things like, you know, if it's below two degrees Celsius, you're probably mitigating a problem that is, you're creating a problem that's larger than the one you're mitigating. Exactly. I mean, and this is the old adage, you know, the cure should not be more costly than the affliction that you're trying to fix. You shouldn't cure a wrist ache by chopping off your arm. Uh, and, and in many ways, that's exactly what we're suggesting. Uh, look, climate change will have real costs. So Nordhaus and many, many others. And this is also the last UN uh, climate report, uh, UN uh, climate panel report estimates that if we do nothing about global warming, the cost by the end of the century will be a reduction in GDP of about, you know, three, four percent. Let's say 3.6. That's uh, the central estimate. 3.6 percent. That means because we're going to be much richer, we're actually going to be about 450 percent richer than we are today. Uh, that means we'll only be 434 percent as rich as we are today. Uh, yeah, it's a little problem. It's not the end of the world. And that's why you should do some things. You should do smart climate policies, but you should not do dumb climate policies. You should not do too much because then you actually leave the future worse off. You leave people with less opportunities. And it's the classical argument that you have to realize climate change is not the only problem out there. Most people have many other problems, like how do I pay for my health care? How do I pay for my heating bill? How do I pay for all these other things that I want and I need and education, what have you? And you need to make sure you maximize across all these areas, not just say, I want to spend everything and the kitchen sink on fixing climate change. But unfortunately, we can't have that conversation if we don't have the numbers. If we have this scaredness that many young people now have, you, it's obvious you think, I'm going to die in 10 years. There is no other problem. It's like a meteor hurtling towards Earth. And the only thing to do is to you know, send off Bruce Willis on a, on a spaceship and, and try to deflect it and do nothing else. But of course, the reality is this is one of the many problems we need to fix in the 21st century. It's by no means the biggest. It's one of the many, and we should fix it smartly. We should remain calm. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. We've got a different kind of sponsor for this particular episode. It's called The Jordan Harbinger Show. It's a podcast you should be listening to. I know every day somebody tells you you have to listen to some podcast or other, and you nod, and you're like, yeah, sure, and then you never listen to it. Don't let that happen here. We are fans here at The Daily Wire. Jordan's show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest. When I say there's something for everyone, I really mean it. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you. That's useful, but also somewhat disturbing. Also, another episode tells the story of a pimp and mafia enforcer who talks about mind manipulation techniques and how he can defend against them. There are other episodes, including people like Scott Adams or Jack Schaefer or Oliver North, maybe even Dan Carlin or Kobe Bryant. I don't always agree with Jordan, but he's a sharp guy and he gives great advice. I learn a lot every time I listen. If that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. There's a lot here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So Bjorn, uh, it seems to me that, that so much of what is going on right now, honestly, is just politicians attempt to evade all sorts of, of basic responsibilities. We saw this after uh, the hurricane that, uh, that ended up causing some flooding in New Jersey and New York State. Uh, the, there are politicians out there every day of the week. Chuck Schumer, the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, and you see this in, in the summer from Gavin Newsom with the wildfires. 
there's the politicians, instead of focusing on what they can do, instead what they tend to do is say things like, well, you know, global warming, man, and we better focus in on global warming like a laser. That means spending trillions and trillions of dollars at the federal level on global warming, or we're going to see more of this kind of stuff. It just seems like a very easy evasion for folks. If you can shift the problem to a problem so large and unmanageable, you can never be blamed for it, that it has to be get China and India on board and then we can solve this problem as opposed to, hey, maybe we should, you know, build a seawall or something near Miami so that we don't get flooded. Then that means you never have to be, there's no responsibility that attaches to your actual political position. It's certainly a way to deflect blame. Uh, So, you know, in Germany, when we heard about all the uh, flooding here, which was terrible and killed uh, several hundred people, it is astounding that the main problem, the reason why so many people died was that the alert system didn't work. People were supposed to get SMS messages, text messages, and and get alerts. There were supposed to be sirens. Almost none of it worked. And of course, the politicians responsible for this were saying, not my fault. It was global warming's fault. It's much easier. But I think there's a bigger part that plays into uh, the fact that most politicians have to promise you a lot of stuff in order to win an election. Now, that's hard to do because you actually have to pay up and, and you can't you know, just hand out money. Uh, eventually, you run out of all that money. But what c- politicians have now discovered is that with climate policy, you can promise that other people in the long-term future are going to spend lots and lots of money on things that you don't actually have to oversee. Uh, remember, uh, Angela Merkel, the, the leader of Germany, has you know, been in politics for 30 years and she's promised all kinds of stuff in climate policy, but now she's leaving before the really hard part comes. And, and you know, pretty much all the leaders that did the Paris uh, Climate Agreement have now left. It's very, very easy to promise you're going to do stuff far into the future and then somebody else have to pay. Essentially, we're uh, uh, applauding them and we're uh, giving them votes because they promised stuff that they were never going to deliver in the first place. That is what we really need to make sure we catch them on and say, look, you can't just promise these grand ideas uh, 10, 20, 30 years out. You have to actually tell us, what are we going to do today? And of course, nobody will actually gain uh, a a victory in an election if they promise to uh, spike the gasoline price by another couple of dollars. That's Bjorn Lomberg. His book is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillion hurts the poor, and fails to fix the planet. You should go check it out right now. So Bjorn, what can we expect from all of these sorts of climate conferences that are supposed to crop up uh, in the next couple of months? I would assume just more promises, more talk, uh, and then uh, Greta Thunberg being disappointed in us. In some ways, she should, because the politicians are getting away with claiming stuff that they will never actually deliver. But we are going to see a lot of politicians promise stuff that will be phenomenally costly if it's actually done. Uh, so if you look here in Europe, uh, we're set to have a very tough winter uh, because we've basically shifted a lot to renewables. Renewables obviously don't deliver when the wind is not blowing and the sun is not shining. So you need backup power typically from gas uh, and we don't have enough gas. It is very likely that this could be a phenomenally expensive uh, winter. And that of course will lead to a lot of people saying, Maybe we don't want all these climate policies if they're leading to this amount of of hurt and damage. And likewise, in the U.S., uh, as Biden is promising to get to net zero by 2050, that will not only cost a phenomenal amount of money. Uh, So one study in Nature estimated that to reach almost his target by 2050 will cost the average American 
And remember again, average American each and every year by 2050, more than $11,000 per person per year. That's a lot of money. I think most politicians can say you're never actually going to win elections po uh, poisoning those kinds of, of, of costs. So what we're basically seeing is lots of people talking, doing some of this, and that will be very costly. It'll actually gain a very little climate benefit, but it will have real hurt. That's a bad idea because there are smarter ways, as you also pointed out, the real way to fix climate change, like most other things, is through innovation. If we could innovate the price of new green energy, that could be solar panels with, uh, with uh, batteries, or it could be uh, 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 better uh, fission, or maybe even fusion energy, or some other idea. If we could innovate cheap green energy, everyone would buy it, not just rich, well-meaning Americans, but the Chinese and the Indians as well. As Bjorn Lomberg, go check out his brand new book, False Alarm, and all of his work over at the Hoover Institution. Bjorn, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Good to talk to you. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 